Welcome to this week's edition of the Dub Nation Warriors podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. Uh, oh, wait, this this isn't a Warriors podcast? We're not just going to switch to talk about something that's actually fun and good and delightful in the world? No, that's absolutely what we're going to do. Yeah, I don't. you guys may have uh, tuned in to hear about the 49ers, but they're terrible, and we're, we don't talk about them anymore. Yeah, the I don't I just I don't even know what to do with myself. I think your your eyeballs can only bleed for so long before <laughs> you realize that that you know that kind of ocular bleeding uh is not good for your health. Uh and yet here we are, my friend, week 7, wrapping it up. Only week 49ers, 7 49ers Buccaneers. Oh, God. I know. There's still eight. There are more weeks left than what we have covered so far and I I don't like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little depressing, uh, but here we are doing the Lord's work, breaking <laughs> down the game, watching it again, so you don't have to on another fantastic Womp Womp Wednesday. This is indeed, though, the kickoff of the NBA season, so for those of you that need a respite, definitely catch some Warriors games because really the question is, and this is going to be the leadoff here on the rundown right away, who is going to lose more games this season? The San Francisco 49ers or... The soon-to-be San Francisco Warriors, a team that plays 82 games in a season. 82 games in a season versus 16. David, put it on the line right now. Who wins more (laughs) or who loses more games? It's going to be real close, which is so sad. It's so terribly, depressingly sad. Um Man, I think I'm probably going to go the 49ers at this point. I think the five games that we had them winning is probably optimistic. Um, yeah. And and I so I think, I don't know, it's, it's going to be right there. Like, I think if, if the 49ers start getting like 13, 14 losses, uh, yikes. Yeah. I mean, at this point, th- this is a team that lost only nine games last year. And I don't think they're going to be that good. Well, I think. As a team, they will probably be better this year, even if they won't win as many games. And yeah, I think, you know, once you get to 11, 12 wins, I think that's the magic number. I think 12 is, is interesting. Uh, and so, well, put some money out there in Vegas. But uh, first, really, I guess, real football related rundown are the rumors coming out of San Francisco about potentially trading Joe Staley and Torrey Smith. Basically, the 49ers are the Titanic, and no one wants to be the last rat off the ship. Off the ship, But at this point, you've had rumors about Joe Staley and Torrey Smith, but then you have competing rumors that these players are not on the trade block. David, help us unpack which of these is probably true, not probably true. Does it really matter at the end of the day? What's going on in San Francisco? I mean, I'm sure it's probably somewhat true, right? Like, I'm sure that uh, for the right price, the 49ers would probably be willing to part with just about anybody on the roster. Like, there there are very few players that I think, you know, it's it's probably just your recent first round picks. Like, they're they're probably not going to trade DeForest Buckner, probably not going to trade Eric Armstead. And like once you get beyond those type of guys, um, I mean, I, I'm sure for the right price, any single player on this roster could be had. Um, on one hand, like I see the argument that it makes sense to, uh, you know, try to get some value for some of these veteran players, right? Like the odds of Joe Staley being on the next very good 49ers team is is probably very low. So if you can get, uh, 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 you know, a high round pick for him. Sure. You, you probably do that. But, 
I, I think there's a couple of complications there. One, almost certainly not going to get anything resembling a first round pick for Joe Staley or anybody else on this roster. Like it, it just doesn't happen. Like for non quarterbacks to get first round picks and trades, it, it's just so rare. Like those are players that don't get traded. Like they're just not available to be traded. Any non quarterbacks that would actually retrieve that sort of value um, in, in a trade so it's it's very hard to see them getting that. Like if that's the, the, the their asking price, like he's staying. Like there's nobody giving up point, a first round pick. And at this point, the, really the 49ers have little to no leverage because at this point, if they are indeed trading people, then you know it's a fire sale. Right. You know the 49ers have accepted their fate. They're like, we're not going to be good. We need to amass draft picks. So there's not going to be a team that's going to be like, yeah, I'll go ahead and give you what you're asking for. We say we want a first. They're going to come back and say, yeah, we'll give you a fourth. And then you'll probably end up somewhere near a third that can move up to a conditional second. If you're absolutely lucky, if you're if you're trading him to like a Minnesota or someone who's entirely tackle starved, or if you're trading him to Seattle, which again, another tackle starved team within the division, but outside of a team that's super needy and on a Super Bowl run, everyone's going to look at you and be like, look, we, we can have a player like this in the offseason for much cheaper, so why bother? And that's, a, I think, the argument with Torrey Smith, right? Like, who's going to take on that contract? And I don't think his contract's, like, that terrible necessarily. Like, the the way that things are structured, you know, makes it to where it's not uh, quite as bad as the overall value seems there. So, um, but at, at the same time, it's like there's a chance that they could cut him after the season, right? Like, uh, why would you give up something for a player that you could potentially have at kind of the low point in their value coming away from, uh, you know, a terrible offense for two straight years and, and barely being able to see targets and just uh, a team that is completely incapable of taking advantage of your strengths. So like your value on the open market is going to be much, much lower than what your contract currently says you're worth. Um, and, and so I just don't see anybody giving up something for them. From the 49ers perspective, like the the other thing that I think is worth considering is it's hard to evaluate your young players, right? You have like already one of the youngest rosters in the entire league. And you have very few like competent veteran players that are still there. And you need some of those guys. While I'm all for like the strategy of, okay, you kind of need to, if you're going to rebuild, you need to bottom out a little bit, um, you know, ship away things and just and just kind of start fresh in a lot of ways you do need like a certain number of veteran players, guys that are kind of like, they may not be great, but they're competent football players that have been in the league for a while. Having those guys around helps you more easily evaluate those young players. If you have just a roster full of dudes who are 22 and 23 years old, like it, it becomes really difficult to evaluate how good they are and, and which players like are worth keeping and which giving second contracts to uh, and all that type of stuff. So I don't think that they should necessarily just start shipping away every single player that's 28 years old or older. So we're, we're going to talk about kind of how you construct that roster and, and age here in a little bit. But I, I really wanted to ask one more question on this point, and that is whether or not, David, you think Trent Balky is the worst GM when it comes to getting value for wide receivers in the NFL. And I asked this question specifically about wide receivers because you look at Mike Wallace. Uh, Richard, friend of the podcast, former co-host, 
part of the original Q. Remember the Q formation when there were three people in the backfield? Yeah, yeah that was fun. <laughs> uh, back when we were good. Uh, he put a gamble on the old Mike Wallace. And he said, I'm going to draft this guy. I think he drafted him in like the 10th round. And he was like championship. And we all lambasted him in our fantasy league. We're like, you are stupid. And Mike Wallace has gained him some pretty phenomenal returns this year in fantasy. There, there's value to be had out there at the wide receiver position. And Trenton Balky seems to find none of it. So between draft picks and free agency or, you know, kind of even bargain bin acquisitions like the Anquan Boldens in Detroit, which I guess was one of the bulky successes, is Trent Balky completely unable to find any kind of value at the wide receiver position? I mean, yeah, kind of like I, I think the two biggest weak spots for him are really, you could argue, like two of the most important positions in today's game, which is quarterback and wide receiver, right? Like I think if you had to put uh, kind of a ranking on positions in today's game, it's going to be in some order after quarterback, receiver, uh, cornerback, and pass rusher, right? Like those are kind of the marquee spots. Passing game uh, kind of rules the day, and and having marquee players at those spots is really going to help you out. And he's just been completely unable to find anything on the offensive side of the ball at those key positions. So uh, I, I think, yeah, there's uh, definitely a clear blind spot there. I think there's also some element of like with I think Mike Wallace is a great example, right, of going to a situation that fits your skill set. I think somebody like Mike Wallace has a very narrow skill set, right? Like there's few things that he does very well. And we saw early in his career, he was in an offense in Pittsburgh that fit those very well, right? It was a vertical passing game. It was, uh, he had a quarterback in Roethlisberger that can throw the ball well downfield. And that fit what he did, you know, well, and he was able to produce in that. He went and tried to be a number one receiver, like a do it all guy. I think there's very few receivers. I, I mean, I don't know, maybe today's game is you get a lot of really good guys, I guess, but that there, there are only a handful of guys, I think, that kind of transcend what you're doing offensively, right? Like your Julio Joneses and your Antonio Browns and those type of players. Like, it doesn't matter what kind of offense you're running. Like, you're going to find a way to get them the ball, and they're going to be great. But most of your kind of second and third guys, like, they need to be put in positions to highlight what they do well. And Mike Wallace is, uh, again, a great example. He went to Miami was tried to be, you know, they, they wanted him to be their Julio Jones, Antonio Brown type of guy. And he just doesn't have those skills. And so he's not producing at the level that you think he should. And then now he comes back to Baltimore and he's in again, another offense and another quarterback that can throw the ball pretty well downfield. Like we saw with Torrey Smith, right? That was what made him attractive uh, on the open market when the 49ers signed him is that he can go downfield. Like if you throw it up to him and you can get it in his vicinity, like he can make plays down the field uh, and the 49ers just can't do that. So I don't think that, well, like it, it's an, I don't think it's an indictment on Torrey Smith that he hasn't produced here um, it, as much as it's just like, they don't have the situation around him to be able to highlight his skills. And, you know, I guess maybe part of that's on bulky, you know, you got to know your, the rest of your team and know how things can fit in. But uh, it, it's hard when you don't have a good quarterback. Like it, it's hard to do a whole lot offensively in the passing game. So talking about roster construction, and this will be the third and final story here in the rundown. I came across a, a story recently talking about Trent Balky and the rostering methodology. This was on the front page of Niners nation. 
And and while the thesis of that article was was kind of interesting, I thought where they talked about kind of stacking players in the same year uh, and, and how that could be bulky strategy. It, it got me thinking about one statistic specifically that I remember about Pete Carroll's tenure in Seattle. And that was that he retained only 66% of his roster from in 2010 after he took over the team with John Schneider. And, and that's a fairly low percentage. I think the average that year was somewhere near 79%. And he had a bit of a mandate to kind of change everything. Um, but he's also been consistently able to cut players and rotate and churn the bottom of the roster. Right. And this is we, we've talked about in the past about Seattle's penchant for signing uh, undrafted free agents and how they normally have the highest percentage of undrafted free agents because they get a lot of players in the system and try to churn them through. They're also cold and calculating, much like Bill Walsh was. They've cut players like TJ Hushman Zode in 2010. Uh, after he, yeah, <laughs> put him on the board. <laughs> uh, that's all, honestly one of the greatest commercials I mean, ever. All time all-time great name, all-time great commercial. TJ, who's your mama? Uh, it just, it's, it's really a classic. It really is. But after they gave him a $40 million contract, and I mean, shit, we just gave Torrey Smith a $42 million contract, right? Uh, and, and this is almost a decade later. They cut him in 2010. They cut Matt Hasselbeck in 2011. Former Pro Bowlers, Lofa Tatupu, Marcus Trufant, Leroy Hill, and Leon Washington. And they're consistently churning the bottom of the roster because they're basically taking the spaghetti on the wall approach. And their DVOA goes from 29th in the league in 2009, 30th in the league in 2010. So they actually got a little a little worse, even though the team performance got a little better. 2011 is when you start to see those players emerge. And then you have the Russell Wilson effect. And now all of a sudden you've got a string of best in the league DVOA finishes. And you've got a system that's beginning to work. So... It really, my question is, thinking about how Balky has put this roster together and thinking about his reluctance to take chances, right? It, it, and there's, there's multiple ways to put a roster together. I don't, I don't think that Seattle's way is necessarily inherently great and the 49ers' way is inherently bad. But would you be in favor of just kind of blowing this whole thing up and, and saying, you know what? Let's go ahead and turn over everything. The Tony Gerard Eddies of the world, get out of here. Let's let's replace you with some upstart that can that can that we don't know if you can play. Let's see it. Marcus Rush. Let's see if you can actually play. Gerald Hodges, we know you're trash. Get out of here. Right? You know, Antoine Bethay, get out of here. Like at, at this point, is it time to just start churning everyone to see what sticks? I mean, I think it's the answer is probably yes. Um, which on one hand kind of sucks. So I I, I think in that scenario, right? And I think this is why there's not a, a great outcome for this team, at least in the short term, is that I, I think that Chip Kelly is a good football coach. Like, I, I still kind of maintain that stance despite what's happened this year. I think that the the talent on this roster makes it impossible uh, to really evaluate, um, you know, what he's doing. I, I think it makes it, I guess, at least very difficult. And you, we've talked about some signs in terms of, the offense, like, okay, you're able to scheme some guys open and just not take advantage. And, and there's things there that highlight his kind of growth as a coach and, and kind of some changes that he's made since uh, his tenure in Philadelphia. But if you're going to blow it all up, right, if you fire Balky and you, you really say that we're going to go 
try to find the best GM from outside the organization. We're not going to do the, uh, you know, just promote uh, gamble and and let him and Chip kind of do their thing and and kind of run this team. Like, and that's really more, I think, maintaining the status quo more so than you know this this idea of we're just going to completely overhaul things, which is what you know Seattle did. Like, the, when when Carol got there, like they really just got rid of everybody. And it, it was a, a situation where the thing that they've been very good at is identifying players that fit what they want to do. Right. Especially on defense. Like they, they are able to identify guys that fit this profile of what they want in their players. And I think the ways you can go about building that team, right? Like, unfortunately, while I, in, I think we've talked about this at a few points before, but Ideally, you have a coaching staff, right, that can kind of adapt to your players and and whatever roster you have there, they can kind of switch things up and and be able to um, figure out a system that works best for their skill sets. A bit like Belichick, right? Belichick went from being power run initially with Brady and then he went to Randy Moss and basically full spread. And then now he's, you know, two tight ends and kind of went back and and now he's back to this two tight end Mattel's Bennett thing. But He's he's those are more subtle tweaks, I think, than than right. what we're talking about. But you, you've lived enough life that you can fit your system around your players and not the other way around. But unfortunately, there's, you know, one Belichick. Right. So I, I, I don't think that there are many coaches. While that idea, I think, is great. And, and if you can pull that off, like that's certainly the best case scenario. Right. If you have somebody like Belichick that uh, just is has just knows literally everything about football, it seems, and, and can can really truly adapt to whatever his players uh, that, you know, that he has on the roster. There just aren't many guys like that, like in like ever, like even, even great coaches like Bill Walsh, right? Like initially that system developed because he kind of, you know, tried to, to, to find something that fit around the players that he had. But eventually this became like, you know, the West coast offense was a relatively rigid system where, you know, it was tough for quarterbacks to come in and learn. You always heard about the it takes a quarterback two or three years to learn the system and, and figure things out. And it became a situation where you just have to be good at finding guys that can fit what you do. Right. Like you develop a system, you believe that it works and you think that that's kind of the best way to go about things. And then the challenge becomes, can I identify players that fit what I'm trying to do. And I think that's where most coaches, like that's the most realistic thing to try to do. I think uh, in Baltimore, they've done a very good job of that under Ozzie Newsom, right? Uh, Seattle, again, is a great example where they have a system. It's no different than, than what we've talked about with chip, right? Like everybody tries to knock on chip because it's like, he's rigid. This is his system. It's his way. And he's not going to adapt to his players. But the reality is a lot of teams do that. You know, it's it's what it, Chip has struggled with in Philadelphia when he got personnel control was identifying the players that fit that system. Right. That was kind of more the yeah. struggle. And that's, I think, the the issue here is if, if you keep that, you you have to be able to figure out a way to find players that fit what you do. Like, I think it's OK to have a system and, and to this is what you know, this is what you you know how to do, and this is what you can teach your players best. Um, but you have to be able to find guys that fit. And right now, like with with what Chip wants to do, there's just, we don't have the guys on this roster. And so I think it makes it difficult to evaluate him. And while it would be great to just, you know, blow things up and, and start scratch, from scratch, I don't know that you're going to find, uh, you know, a better head coach than Chip Kelly right now. 
All right. Well, that that gives us a rundown. It's it's a bye week. We figured we'd give uh, things a little bit longer uh, to run because when we get into this Bucks recap, let's talk about a couple of the biggest takeaways. Story of the last couple of weeks, number one takeaway has been the defensive struggle and specifically the defensive struggle against the run. And, and David, I think you pretty much summed it up earlier when we were when we were prepping for the show when you said it seems like this defense can't all be good at the same time. Like there there are flashes here and there, but all in all, they just simply cannot all put it together to play as one defensive unit. This is a Bucks team that came in ranked 28th on offense and 23rd on defense. This is not a good team, despite what it is that you saw on Sunday. One of this team's most notable wins was against Carolina. The Derek Anderson led Carolina Panthers on Thursday. So it's not as if you were getting uh, an upstart resurgent team. I mean, th- this is get used to it, 49ers fans. This is the team everyone begins to take off against. This is the fix it team. This is the elixir. This is Felix <laughs> Felicis for those of you who have read a book or two in the Harry Potter series. So ultimately, this is a team that came in. We even predict, I mean, we both predicted a win. Yeah. At home against a shitty Bucks team that was struggling, that we predicted a win, and yet this is what we get. And prime among it is that that run defense. So, so David, help us understand what the hell is happening with this goddamn run defense that is letting Jaquiz Rogers, a player that Terry Bradshaw didn't even know existed. <laughs> of course he didn't. Uh yeah, I mean, I think we we mentioned right in the preview. Uh, I think you asked if if, if Rogers was going to be able to go for a hundred. I was like, no, come on! Like, there's there's no way that that's actually going to happen. He had it right? before the first half. Like, uh, before I, I the spent, first half, I spent hours hours of my life writing an article uh, last Friday about how things were about to get better because it just seemed like okay, you know, the the, the schedule had been very difficult so far. Uh, it had been very difficult in kind of some very specific ways that aligned the weaknesses of this team. Um, and that was kind of about to go away, right? Like you had some teams on the schedule coming up over the next six or seven weeks that uh, didn't have those same strengths, right? You weren't going to face running games that looked like Dallas and, and Buffalo that were two of the best run games in football. Um, and then all of a sudden you have, you know, this Tampa Bay run game, uh, that had been very bad. Like, I think they were, I want to say they were like 29th in uh, run offense DVOA going into the week. Um, and they just, they, they went crazy. And, and I think the, the way to kind of best sum it up um, was actually Greg Cosell said this, uh, or I guess version of this in his KMBR in- interview. And it was, you know, really run defense is relatively simple when you kind of break it down. There's really three things that need to happen for you to have a good run defense. You have to be sound in your gap responsibilities, right? You have to have guys that are accounting for each gap and you can't leave those vacant. If you obviously leave, you know, a, a gap there in the offensive line where there's just no defender there, that's going to lead to some very big plays. So you have to be gap sound. Next, you have to be able to defeat blocks. Like it's not enough to just be kind of there in the general right position, you have to be able to shed the offensive linemen and get after the ball carrier and, and find them. Right. So you have to defeat blocks and then you have to make the tackle when you're in position. And right now the 49ers don't do any one of those things. Well, like the, the you, you definitely can't get all three to happen on the same play. And you're lucky if you get two of them, 
It's just a, a, a situation where it, it, even when you have a couple of players that are doing fairly well, the run defense is very much like a, a team, a front seven related activity. Like you need everybody to be on the same page and to be completing those assignments. And if you have even one guy that's not doing that, like things are going to break down pretty quickly. And, and we see that just time and time again with this run defense. So let's talk about a couple of those things. Then we talked about, you know, you can't leave free gaps. You have to defeat your blocks and you have to make the tackle, especially in space. So let's talk about leaving free gaps. We talked last week about how we were expecting the Buccaneers to give us that unbalanced line look. And we talked a bit about what problems that presents for the defense. We saw the 49ers attack it a couple different ways. I saw Purcell line up over the guard, which was one way that you said we could attack it last week. But by and large, we saw the nose tackle line up over the center, which means you're going to have an extra gap somewhere. And we saw a play where you had an unbalanced line to the right and then an additional two tight ends to that same side. Purcell lines up over the center, and based on how everyone aligned, you've got Eric Reed looking to have a gap on the outside. Now, you think to yourself, okay, everyone looks to have a gap, everyone's aligned, but what happens at the snap? Gerald Hodges blitzes on one of those run blitzes that Jim O'Neill seems to love to run, and he kind of gets pushed inside. He goes too far inside, and... It's a blitzing linebacker that the offensive line knows because it's telegraphed and they know exactly what to expect. They're able to block it and the guard is able to get up to the second level to get below. Armstead pushes out way too wide. He gets washed out of the play. And now all of a sudden you've got Eric Reed in basically trying to cover a two gap situation and he does his best. But at this point, Jaquiz has already got like six or seven yards. And so you've got a, a, a gap that was not really covered because of Armstead and Hodges. It wasn't one player by themselves. It's both players together creating an extra gap. You've got Belor who can't get off a block to save his life because his name is Nick Belor, uh, but I bet he plays a mean tuba. And <laughs> and then you've, you've got, you know, luckily someone actually made the tackle. Believe it or not, Hodges actually came off and, and, and made the tackle, but everyone is failing at one level or another against the look that you knew you were going to get. And on one play, you've got basically everything. Any other play, you fire up that defense and you're looking at Belor or Hodges missing tackles. Robinson misses tackles. Belor can't get off a block to save his life. I mean, this defense legitimately cannot string these three things together. And when they do, they force a punt and their goddamn freaking gunner bumps <laughs> into the goddamn kick returner and ends up causing a fumble and off you go. Yeah, I mean, I thought uh, kind of a great example of all of those things failing uh, was kind of the the the, the long run from Rodgers, the 45-yarder, like midway through the second quarter. Um, and it was really a, a situation where you had uh, Aaron Lynch was kind of the backside guy. So they're running a single back power to the right-hand side of the offense. And Aaron Lynch is on the backside with that. He really needs to be kind of closing down, you know, pinching that backside gap, that backside B gap, and making sure that there's not a cutback lane there. And what he does instead is kind of get too far upfield, trying to get around the blocker and make a play rather than kind of sticking with the sound assignment and, and just I need to do what's best for this defense as a whole rather than trying to get around and make a play myself that I probably shouldn't be making. 
And so you see him get too far upfield. That opens up the, the cutback lane for Rodgers. And then he gets there and he makes two people miss. So you have like uh, Tremaine Brock that's trying to come up and support that whiffs on a tackle. And then you have uh, another player, I forget uh, which one it was, that is trying to come over um, that also like basically just dives at his feet. Um, and, and so it's just kind of this combination of things. You had also Nick Ballore on that play that's kind of over pursuing, getting out of his gap. Um, it, it's just everything at once. And that's how you get 45 yard runs, right? Is, is you just don't do these basic things well. And that unfortunately happens time and time again. And, and even on, you know, situations again, where they do one or two of those things, right? Say they, they get all of your gaps accounted for, they're not beating the blocks. Like you, you see consistently the line of scrimmage move back three, four, five yards where yep. these running backs just aren't getting touched until they're into the, you know, well into the second level, essentially. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about that second, the end of the second half for a second, because the, I mean, they, they are getting pushed back a lot. We've talked a, a bit about Buckner. We've talked we, a little bit about uh, Armstead and Buckner specifically, but these defensive lapses, I think, were were super interesting, but they weren't necessarily just at the defending the run level. They were also in in defending the pass. And at the end of the second half, you had effectively a very, very interesting swing. You had both our anemic offense trying to score with like 35 seconds left. And you had the defensive touchdown that was given up there right before the end of the half. And I thought it was really interesting that Richard Robinson is going to get pinned with a lot of bad things this week. He allowed five receptions on seven targets for 61 yards, two touchdowns. That's not a good stat line by any measure. But entering the week, he had the league's lowest yards per cover snap allowed amongst cornerbacks. So, I mean, that that's not sustainable over the course of the year. But you certainly aren't going to think that you're going to give up two touchdowns and 61 yards and look like trash. So... Let, let, talk to me about that touchdown that we allowed and how maybe it looked like Rashard Robinson gave up that touchdown reception, but in reality, it was more than likely a breakdown somewhere else in the defense. Yeah, I think it was it, it was hard to pin that one solely on him at the very least. So I think you had a couple things going on there. One, um, he was playing an off coverage, which I, I, I really don't like generally for him. Like he is, is a player that's much better. We can be up at the line of scrimmage kind of, being physical there and then trailing a, a, a receiver and kind of just sticking with him um, throughout the route rather than kind of sitting back and, and giving them that space and then trying to react to what's happening. So I think you had him in, in sort of a bad position there initially for what his skill set is best suited to. And then two, when you look at the coverage on that play, so it, it appears to be like a, a sort of cover for coverage, right? Where you have, um, you know, kind of your safeties essentially sitting low, like they're they're all a, a good sign of cover four is that your safeties are up a little bit closer to line of scrimmage. So they're not quite as deep as you would see on like a cover two, cover three sort of situation. Um, the next thing is that they're going to be kind of focused on the number two receiver, right? So they're the, the inside most guys, whether that's a tight end, the slot receiver, that's going to be kind of where their focus is initially. And then depending on what that receiver does, if they break, say, inside short or in the case uh, of this particular play that we're talking about with Eric Reed, the tight end that was aligned in front of him stays in the block. So at that point, they're going to look back outside to the number one receiver and effectively look to bracket that guy. 
And it, it definitely looks that way when you see how Robinson is playing that route. So uh, Shepard, who ends up scoring the touchdown this play, kind of runs. Uh, he gives a little nod to the corner and then breaks back into the post. But the entire time, Robinson is playing with outside leverage. He's he's trying to take away any sort of outbreaking routes and effectively kind of giving up that inside. And usually when you see a cornerback playing that way, it's because they're expecting some sort of help inside. Um, and given the way things played out, it definitely seemed like Eric Reed was supposed to be um, that inside help that Robinson was expecting. And it just never came. Uh, Reed got his eyes kind of fixated in the backfield, never really got much depth uh, in his drop there. And then the ball goes right over his head and it ends up being a touchdown. So, that was a situation where, yes, Robinson is the primary guy in coverage, and, and that's going to kind of go on his stat sheet there. But I don't know that that was entirely on him. And when you look at a lot of those other receptions, it was kind of um, either a similar story where, you know, it was it was hard to put a lot of blame on him or two. He was in great position and the receiver just kind of made a, a good catch. And, you know, that's going to happen sometimes like expecting cornerbacks to completely shut out guys every single week just doesn't really happen anymore. And uh, again, like you mentioned, the the great stats that he had in terms of uh, yards allowed per cover snap, um, it, it just likely, you know, this is a guy that was a fourth round rookie. Like it's probably not going to uh, continue to produce as the best cornerback in football throughout the entire season. So we knew that he was going to eventually give up some stuff, but I think, when you look at the specific plays where he gave up those yards, you can kind of live with how he did it. Like those things are going to happen. And, you know, unfortunately it led to a couple scores in this game. So let's switch then to the offensive side of the game or, or the offensive side of the end of the half. And you had some curious play calls. This is a, you know, when, when we were prepping for the show, I was asking David, I was like, look, help, help me understand what's going on here. Because, when I looked at the final series that the 49ers had to end the half, I saw three timeouts, a little bit of time. You can make some aggressive plays and, and see what happens. And instead, what I saw was on, on the first down, really, the first play, one deep route. And then you call levels, which isn't exactly a huge gainer. Uh, it, it really is kind of a, a zone beater that you're hoping to get just a couple of yards on. Then you've got all curls which is literally having all of your routes stop at a predetermined uh, at a predetermined yardage, which in this case was close to about seven or eight yards. Then you have a wide receiver screen. Then by that time, you're at third and nine, and Colin Kaepernick throws really, really short, really, really quickly with 26 seconds left. You, it felt quite a bit like they were playing for the field goal or at the very least playing not to screw it up. And, and that, to me, just didn't seem like, like a smart offensive choice, especially from Chip Kelly, a coach that's typically aggressive. And yet I laid all that at the feet of David, and he walked me off the ledge, and he was like, hold on, we still kind of suck. Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of have to come back to that, right? And this isn't a, a good offense by any stretch. Like, it's, it's hard to kind of expect them to produce hope, these David. big plays. I just um, want some hope. I, I want some hope too. Like I had hope. I, I had all, all of the hope going into this game that they were going to be able to pull it out against another bad team. They were going to be kind of somewhat this, uh, we're, we're going to be the, 
the best of the really shitty teams in this league, which is kind of sad, but that was like the highest thing that you could hope for uh, with this team. But I mean, this offense isn't good, right? They don't have uh, talent skill positions. Like it's hard to expect them to produce can uh, big plays consistently with this offense. So I think when you go into that situation, right, you have 48 seconds when you get the ball, you do have all three of your timeouts, but the, the, the safer play, like the, the play that is most likely to actually occur is getting the field goal. Right. And I think there's a number of, uh, of things that point to that one defenses in that situation are going to play softer, right? They're going to play softer coverages. They're going to take deeper drops in their zone drops, like they want to keep everything in front of them and kind of give up that underneath stuff and and prevent the big play from happening. So already, like it's going to be a little bit tougher to to get those shots downfield in that situation. So I think it makes you know some sense. I, at least you, I think you can justify it. Uh, the I'm going to throw the ball underneath and hope I can get some yards after the catch and kind of move the ball. 40, 50 yards downfield and get into field goal range as opposed to having to go, you know, effectively the length of the field, 75 yards after the touchback um, to get it in the end zone. So I I think that element makes a little bit of sense. And uh, that definitely seemed to be what they were going for. Like you mentioned, basically everything that they ran on that drive was some sort of underneath concept, right? It was you had a, a screen, you had levels, you had these throws that were all going you know, basically under 10 yards in the air. And you're you're hoping that you can get some easy receptions there, get some yards after the catch and kind of move the ball downfield little by little. Uh, And it just didn't happen uh, for, I I guess, a couple of reasons, like, but mostly that they don't have great players offensively. And it's, it's going to be hard to do that. So from an an approach standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, I, I get kind of, that thought. And and that's coming from a place where, again, if you've listened to the show for a long time, you know that I'm a proponent of being very aggressive and, you know, taking chances when coaches probably wouldn't otherwise. But when you look at the makeup of this team and you look at where their strengths lie, or I guess their, their weaknesses mostly, uh, that approach makes sense to me. And I, I think you can justify trying to just kind of get into field goal position, get some points on the board and and take that as a win if you can. So the third biggest takeaway from this game is of course going to be Colin Kaepernick. Last week we told you that the ruling on Colin Kaepernick was a little incomplete because he was going up against the Bills defense that was top 10 in DVOA. This week he went against the defense that was bottom I guess bottom third most definitely, but I think ranked 26 or something like that overall in DVOA. And so we said, okay, let's evaluate Kaepernick after this start. So, David, give me your quick thoughts on Kaepernick after this start because we still got to get to our spotlight players uh, and talk about the NFL because that's a bit more fun than talking about the 49ers this week. So Kaepernick went against a, a worse defense, but did he perform any better? Um, I, I think there was a lot of the same, right? Like, so I, I think the areas that he struggled in were, you know, he, he missed some throws. Definitely like the, the ball location on a few throws wasn't very good. Um, I did think he generally made pretty good decisions when it came to deciding whether he needed to get the ball out or whether he needed to take off and scramble. I mean, obviously the stats were good. Like I think he had what 80 something yards rushing and, and most of that coming on scrambles. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the value that he added there was was very clear. I think like that 
We talked about uh, when he was going to take over for Gabbert that even though Gabbert had been very good in that regard, like in terms of uh, picking up yard scrambling, getting, you know, what was there on the zone read looks like it was really unlikely that we were going to see a drop off there with Kaepernick. Like at the very least, he was going to maintain that sort of production. Um, and we've definitely seen that through two weeks, like that he's been at least I mean, as Tampa good. Bay, Tampa Bay played a lot of man coverage. I mean, and they they were yeah. basically like daring them to to pass and they dropped another player down in the box. And Kaepernick, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast in the past about how when a quarterback scrambles, even if he gains yards, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was the right decision because he left a 10, 15, 20 yard pass on the table. But in this case, a lot of the times where he chose to pull it down and run, it was a good decision. People were covered. Wide receivers were not open. And he ended up getting the seven, eight, nine yards. And ultimately, it was the right call. Yeah, I, I, I thought with maybe a couple exceptions. Um, and, and again, nobody's going to get those uh, decisions right 100% of the time. Like when you're in that moment um, and you're trying to make these decisions on the field, like it's tough to do. So uh, I, I think that he generally did a very good job in that. Um, if anything, I thought he could have probably ran more. Like there were a couple of situations where he looked to try to fit the, the, the ball into kind of some tight windows where he had a pretty big running lane and he probably could have taken off and gotten more yardage there. Um, but from, I, I guess like a, a bigger picture standpoint, it was really m- more of what we've seen from him over the last couple of years. I mean, it was, uh, he was able to get some yards on the ground. He missed some throws deep. He wasn't very good navigating the pocket under pressure. Like when he, when he had those situations where, um, and, and this is actually even with like, he had a lot of good pockets. Like there were a lot of plays where he had plenty of time in the pocket, um, had good protection there and like, wasn't able to find anything, but, you had a lot of situations where, you know, he was able to kind of make something happen once, once he got pressure because nothing was open downfield. So I I don't know that, you know, the, the, what we've seen from him from two weeks is really any different than what we saw in 2014, 2015. And it's really a situation where he's probably is what he is at this point. Like he's somebody that if you give him good protection, if you allow him time in the pocket, and you get guys open downfield, he can probably make those throws. Like he's going to be able to pick up those plays, but he's not going to be able to throw guys open. He's not going to be able to make accurate throws under pressure. Like he's going to continue to struggle with those things. Um, and until we see like a, an extended stretch of him doing otherwise, like I, I don't know why we would expect anything different. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think his ball location was not great. Uh, there were a couple people open that he missed, and he made some good plays with his legs. So Colin Kaepernick is the guy that we thought he was. Uh, and but I so will say far, much better than like even though it hasn't been good, like there there are still better things than what we saw from Blaine Gapper. Like I still think that is the correct move. Like he he still is getting more on the ground than Gabbert would have. Um, he's taken advantage of more things in the passing game than Gabbert did. Um, so it's still not good. Like neither of them are good players, but it's better. So if you'd rather get kicked in the left nut than the right nut, uh, go with Colin Kaepernick. 
if you'd rather get kicked in the much. right nut than the left nut, uh, <laughs> go with Blaine Gabbert is basically what we're saying. Exactly. So let's get to really quickly our spotlight players of the week. And, and this week we have two. Uh, one is going to be Aaron Lynch. The other is going to be Joshua Garnett. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Josh Garnett for a minute because this is really now his second game where he's starting. And by and large, we saw the same player that we saw at Stanford, a player that's good in the run game and a player that's not so good in the pass game. One of the plays that I thought was most impressive for him was a counterplay. The 49ers ran a lot of counterplays this game uh, where they pulled the guard. And they pulled Beatles a couple times, and they pulled Garnett on at least one that I can remember where he basically runs and plows into the edge defender and kicks him out real hard. Yep. Yep. And, and it's like, oh, all right, okay, there's a first-round guard. And then you see a play where he's in pass protection, and he's trying to get into his pass set, and Gerald McCoy just absolutely destroys him. I mean, he literally layers a move on a move on a move, and Josh Garnett has no idea what to do. McCoy jabs step outside, comes inside, spins around, and all of a sudden he's in Colin Kaepernick's face, and Josh Garnett, surprised he wasn't on the ground after that play because uh, the, the dude uh, seems to have a bit, of, a bit of a balance problem. So Josh Garnett, inconsistent, up and down, would still like to see him at left guard and not at right guard. Again, I guess we've gone into the whole blow the whole world up mentality. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, that, that's, I think, the, the line on Josh Garnett. What did you think of, of Aaron Lynch? Because this is a guy that we had some, some pre-episode talk about in terms of what we think he's doing so far. Yeah, I mean, with Lynch, it was a situation where he was going up uh, against, I mean, he's, a, he's somebody that primarily aligns on the right side of the defense. Um, so he's going up against left tackles. And this was a, a left tackle in Donovan Smith that hasn't been very good at all this year. Like he's been one of the worst tackles in football this year. And so you would hope that Aaron Lynch would be able to kind of produce on that, right? Like be able to really take advantage of that weaker matchup. Um, and it it just didn't happen. I mean, he ended up with four pressures. Like I don't think it was a terrible game, but it just isn't what you would really hope for for a player that's shown what he's shown in, in previous seasons. Uh, I mean, this was a guy that in when you look at his pass, uh, pass rush productivity, so uh, Pro Football Focus looks at not just the number of sacks that you get, right, but how often you're pressuring the quarterback relative to how many times you're, you're actually, you know, doing, you're rushing the passer, how many snaps you're doing that for. Um, and he's been one of the most productive players in that stat for the last two years. So he's been somebody that's been very good at his position um, and just hasn't quite got home, hasn't gotten the sack numbers that you would hope from like a, a marquee pass rusher. So even if he's not going to be that guy, I think it was probably unrealistic to expect him to be like an all pro type player at that position and get 10, 12, 15 sacks uh, off the edge there. Like he he's still somebody that should be at least the best pass rusher on this team and it, it it and getting you know in the like the eight to ten sack range i think like it is probably appropriate for him um and we we just haven't seen that like he wasn't able to take advantage of that matchup and it was kind of a disappointing thing where where you have this team that just can't really pressure the passer very well like it, it's it was a situation going into the season where you hope that Buckner and Armstead in the middle, 
Lynch off the edge was able to get like affect the 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 pass somewhat, right? <laughs> like at least do something. And we we just haven't seen it so far. And Lynch has been, uh, you know, kind of a a disappointment. I think through three weeks at, at the very least. I think last week we said that, especially against someone like Donovan Smith, if Aaron Lynch didn't produce against Smith, then who the hell is he going to produce against? And I think that's what we're seeing at this moment. We're we're seeing Aaron Lynch not dominate inferior competition, which means that he's more than likely at the level of inferior competition. Doesn't mean he's going to be bad. Um, and and again, this is a fifth round pick, right? So like, temper your expectations at this point. Uh, but uh, definitely the the shine is rubbing off of Aaron Lynch, yeah. uh, and and so it's 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 interesting I think to see nonetheless. But wrapping up the discussion against the Bucks is going to be our statistic of the week, and that's going to be from Ben Stockwell at Pro Football Focus. The 49ers have allowed eight runs of 15 yards or more to power and counter concepts, and that's just shy of 20 percent of the 15-plus runs from those concepts in the NFL this year. So basically, if you're facing the 49ers, the blueprint is established. Run a power, run a counter. They can't stop you. Uh, 7.9 yards per carry on those concepts. Yeah, dude. It's, um, it's, not, and, it's not pretty. And the, the crazy thing that he added there is 55% of those yards are before contact. So again, like we mentioned, they're getting pushed back. Like these running backs aren't getting touched until they're well into the second level, um, which is is really, really bad. <laughs> like it's yeah. I mean, for for as as kind of a gauge, they're not getting touched until <laughs> they're not getting touched quite a bit into the second level. Your <laughs> your linebackers are lined up at about seven yards. Oh, usually so less the, than that. Usually like. Five. Well, not not unless you're Belor. Belor likes to line up about seven yards, and then he likes to back up a couple steps, and before he goes forward, like two steps, and it gets real weird with that guy. And and at this point, you're basically saying that the the running back is not getting touched until he gets to the linebacker standing flat. Yep. Like like that's that that's the move at this point. At this point. Belor is standing where he aligns, opens his arms in a big bear hug, and says, come to me. And and that's maybe when he thinks about hitting a running back. Except that's for Belor is usually the one that's trying to sprint in the backfield where there's nobody. Uh, and, and, and throw an arm out? Completely trip him? Like, oh, I, I, I tried. I gave it a but good I effort. I touched you. Belor's um, out there playing tag while the rest of us are trying to play football. And well, I use the word uh, us loosely. God, I don't even want to... Think loosely about the linebacker play with this. Team. So let, let's get into some more fun stuff. Let's get into NFL quick hits because we enjoy talking about the NFL at large because the NFL is fun. Uh, so David, th- there was a, a controversial play. Jarvis Landry went back, knocked some dude in the chest uh, and knocked that poor gentleman out. Uh, and, but it was not an illegal play. The NFL.com story, I believe uh, if I am to read the headline was Jarvis Landry play ruled a football play in quotes. You can't see me do the air quotes, but that's what <laughs> Dean Blandino said. Um, and, and so this was a, a hit on cornerback Aaron Williams drew criticism everywhere, but real quick, you tell me that's the kind of football that we want to watch on Sundays. Yes or no. 
I'm not gonna lie. I haven't seen the play. I'm gonna oh, pull dude. it up right now. Uh, All right, let's let's make the internet. I'm gonna do some I'm work gonna here. flip it to you. Like I'm gonna ask you the same question. Uh, what was your impression of the play? My impression of the play was: Did he hit him in the head? Nope. Well, that's a play. Like Bruggy, I, like like yeah, like internet yep. shrug. Yeah, I gave you the internet shrug, right? It's like you, I, and we've been very vocal on this pod on this podcast. <laughs> I almost said podcast. Uh, look, we're a couple beers in, all right. Leave us be. It's a depressing show. Um, it's really sad. It really we're is not sad. But right now, um, the I, I we've been very vocal on this podcast about never wishing for a player to be injured, nor never wishing ill on a player. We'll call a player out if they're trash. I'm looking at you, Nick Ballore. <laughs> but we're not going. But we're not going to will an injury. And Jarvis Landry didn't go. Didn't go at the knees. Didn't go to the head. Went to the midsection and hit a dude real hard. That's football. Like I mean, shit. It happened in the game where uh, Jimmy Ward hit uh, Mike Evans, and he nicked, He he knocked him in the midsection. Oh, on I'm the play right now. That's that's absolutely fine. That's on the play side of a running play. Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's, he's blocking Aaron Williams. Back. Get your fucking head on a swivel. Like <laughs> holy shit. No, that's I. I'm 100 like, and this is again with a take of I am 100 behind a lot of the rule changes that that are trying to make this game safer for players because I think there are a lot of things like this game probably wasn't designed to be for players that, that are no, moving that as fast big. and that are as nope. big as these guys are. Nope. Uh, and so there, there's some things there that probably need to be changed. And, and so all about player safety, I think that's very important. And I think but that's, this is not one of those things that should no, be changed. This is a, a thing that he's just like Aaron Williams isn't paying attention. Yep. Is is what it really looks like. Uh, and yeah, this is, and this is the fine. thing. Okay, so last point here because I don't want to. I don't want to belabor the belabor beleaguer the point. Jesus Christ, I don't want to beleaguer the point. <laughs> um, I also don't want to fucking belabor the point. But I, <laughs> nobody wants to. Nobody the wants point. to belabor the point. Although, did you see that he tried to make people shut up during his concert? I'm literally I'm so my wife puts on Good Morning America every morning and this morning no. they were talking about how Justin Bieber was getting mad at his audience for screaming during the parts where he's trying to talk to them and he's like <laughs> shut up shut up during these segments I'm trying to connect with you and like drops the mic and walks off like oh god what a little turd I wish Jarvis Landry would hit him in the midsection um you remember that thing I said about not wishing ill on people yeah, that lasted all. I mean, maybe minutes. just a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah. But but here's uh, ultimately, I think that you, you, I honestly I forgot my point. I just got to believers, and then I started thinking about the the uh, <laughs> the about biography of Stevie Young. And, yeah, you know, no, it just do goes it. downhill from there. Can't even do it. All right, hit me with the next one, David. What's uh, what's the next one on the quick hits? I think Chargers are going to make the playoffs. True or false? Yeah. Oh, God. You know, here's what I will say. I want them to make the playoffs. I want them to make the playoffs so hard. I mean, th- this team legitimately is like four plays away from being six and one. Yeah. Um, 
like it, it's it's stupid how good they are and they finally won a close one finally won a close one and and so i honestly i hope they make the playoffs i hope they make a deep run and then they move to la i mean they're definitely moving to la i i think uh in a league that doesn't have like really any very clear favorites like okay maybe you point to new england you maybe point to seattle i guess um like th- there aren't very many teams that are separating themselves at this point and so i think with san diego again they've been very very close in a lot of their games um most of their losses have been in very heartbreaking fashion uh i, I think the the argument is definitely there that they are one of the i don't know eight, 10 best teams in football. And, and that's definitely a playoff team. And so I think, uh, they, they can make a push if they can get a little bit of luck their, their way. Um, I I think you see a team again, that should maybe be six and one right now, instead of three and four, uh, they, they make a push over the second half of the season. All right. So next quick hit is going to be based on an interesting discussion I had with a gaggle of LSU fans uh, watching the game on Saturday night. And that is whether or not in three years the better player is Leonard Fournette or Todd Gurley. And I mean better player in the NFL. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with Fournette because he's probably not going to play for Jeff Fisher, which is <laughs> is is always a good thing. The mustache I'm gonna curse assume is real. That, that the Rams aren't also going to take him. Uh, since they have Todd Gurley. I mean, you never know. Oh I guess God. you can't How amazing quite would it rule be it out. If Jeff Fisher actually drafts Leonard Fournette. Oh, my God. It would be incredible. Uh, barring that, I, I, I think that you know, running backs have a short lifespan. Like, it, it's, it's tough to find running backs that are going to have kind of this sustained success. Uh, and I think in three years, like, Leonard Fournette's the younger guy. Like he's probably going to look better. Hopefully he's in a better situation. Uh, he's an incredibly fun player to watch. So uh, I, I, I hope that he lands in a situation where he can kind of showcase his skills in the NFL. Um, you just want to see like good players like that find success and, and be, you know, be good and entertaining to watch in the NFL. Um, I, I would probably lean his direction just because of the Jeff Fisher factor. All right, hit me with the next one. Uh, so Adam Gase, Miami Dolphins head coach, he's going to be in the top three uh, coach of the year voting. True or false? Oh man, you know Adam Gase was uh, a show favorite here for the head coaching job, so it would really hurt my heart if he was. But if he can sneak the Miami Dolphins and in the playoffs, I think absolutely. Man, I don't think, I I think Jay Ajayi is going to come back down to earth. Um, You can't rack up 200 yards uh, forever. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do it. Uh, I think Tannehill is better than many people think, but not awesome. Um, And, but this is, I mean, Adam Gase, this is a guy who took the Jay Cutler led bears and, and took them into top 10 DVOA last year before moving to to Miami. I mean, he's a guy who can do some things is all I'm saying. And I mean, you think top 3, who else? I think you've got 
You've got Doug Peterson in Philly. Yeah. And, and the shine is off of them for a bit. You've got Mike Zimmer with the Vikings. The shine is off of them here in a bit. And who else do you got? I mean, that's it. Those are your three. And, and then I think you got Adam Gase in Miami. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they would definitely need to, you know, make a playoff push and and actually probably get into the playoffs for that to be a, a realistic possibility. I, I think Peterson uh, and, and Zimmer certainly, like, based on the way that voters usually go uh, and, and the way those awards usually get handed out, like, certainly have uh, a, probably a stronger case at this point. I mean, you look at Philly, I think that's, if they're able to maintain what they're doing so far, like that's probably it. They're uh, the team that is winning with defense and special teams, right? Like they're, they're not getting great play offensively. And you saw Carson Wentz a little bit in this game against a good defense in, in Minnesota uh, get kind of, I don't want to say exposed. Like, I don't think that it necessarily means that he's a terrible player or anything like that, but you saw him go against much tougher competition than what he was facing early on in the season. Uh, and it, it didn't go very well. Like this was really a game that was won by their defense, uh, which just completely terrorized like the Vikings offensive line and, and Sam Bradford and, and made things very difficult for them. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I would probably lean, towards one of those guys getting the, the award ultimately if, if things continue to play out the way they have so far. Um, but if Gase manages to turn things around and, and kind of get them headed in the right direction, uh, absolutely. That would, that would make sense. Like they love to give that award to teams who have been very bad and then suddenly make a big turnaround, right? Even if it oh, wasn't due to that's coaching. That's the only reason that award exists. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the, the MVP award. It's worst to first. Exactly. The, the MVP award at this point is best quarterback and the or best offensive player at the very least. And coach of the year is biggest turnaround. That's it. Yeah. That, that's all it is. It's, it's, the, it's the glorified version of comeback player of the year. Yeah. Right. Um, all right, so uh, second to last one here. I leave the last one to you, David. Uh, it, it's our Vikings update. We, we've got another Vikings update. It's week seven. Just finished up week seven. Vikings had a rough go, but are the Vikings still the class of the NFC? I I still think I'm probably going with Seattle, um, mostly because I think their upside offensively is higher. So it's a weird situation where right now like defensive play is, is really kind of leading the league. Like most of the best teams through seven weeks so far, when you look at again, Philadelphia, Seattle, Minnesota, um, Denver even is, is another good example. Like are all very good defensive teams and then have offensives that aren't like that good. Like they're kind of below average have, uh, you know, either quarterback play that hasn't been all that great, or in the case of Seattle, like an offensive line that's just completely atrocious and and kind of limits what they're able to do. So I I think that Minnesota is very much in that conversation. But just considering the track record, like I, I think we've seen Seattle play this style of football for longer, right? Whereas Minnesota, this is very much a new thing. Um, them being one of the better teams in the conference is, is kind of really only seven weeks old. 
Um, and, and so I'm not as sure that that's going to sustain throughout the rest of the season into the playoffs as I am with Seattle's probably going to be there, right? They're almost certainly going to be, uh, you know, leading the NFC West and, and into kind of the NFC championship game. Um, it would really take kind of some significant injuries, I think, to prevent that from happening. So I think the Vikings are good. I think they're going to be a playoff team for sure. But I, I don't think that they're really a, a Super Bowl contender at this point. A fun fact that when you're talking about the 49ers and Seattle offense, um, the 49ers have actually scored more points than Seattle's offense and like 144 versus 105 or something like that. Now, granted, Seattle has had a bye week. Uh, but, but yeah, that's, that's just interesting to note. I think in terms of their offense, it really just is chalked up to the defense. So yeah, their offensive line is, is really fucking horrible. Yeah. I mean, we just saw the world's best defensive struggle here, uh, in primetime, not too long ago. So, uh, we'll see what ends up happening with those teams, but all right, David, last one, wrap it up. We'll, uh, we'll answer in, or I will answer in traditional, uh, quick, super quick, yes, no fashion, and then kick the outro while we give the call to action. Uh, so give it a whirl. Let's do this. Wait, I don't have another question. Is there another question here? No, I wrote five. We do six. We do six. Um, I don't really have. Uh, uh, so so let's go. Is there any team beating New England? I guess that's really what it comes down to. I, I don't see. Like for the Super so, Bowl or like, yeah, it, like, like looking league wide, I don't see like every other team has a significant flaw that I think is really hard to overcome. New England is certainly not perfect, but they have, I, I guess, maybe the either fewest or least significant flaws of any team right now. If you if you assume that Brady is going to continue playing the way that he has been. So uh, is there any team, I guess, in the NFC that can challenge what New England is going to bring. Because I, I think barring injury, like barring anything just completely crazy and unforeseen happening, like New England's going to be the team in the AFC that gets the Super Bowl. Um, it, it's just hard to see many teams beating them right now. Uh, and I don't know that we have anybody in the NFC that's complete enough to really challenge that. So uh, do you agree with that? Or do you think that there's somebody in the NFC that can, you know, at least get to their level? I, I honestly lean that way. And as much as it, oh God. All right. So here are the two teams I'm waffling. I, I think the Vikings defense is good enough to stop the Patriots offense. I think the Vikings defense has very, very good players at all three levels and they've got some top five or top ten players at, at a lot of positions. My question, though, is Sam Bradford against a Belichick-schemed defense. I, I've got that versus who I think is more talented in terms of what they can do, and that's the Dallas Cowboys. I think the Dallas Cowboys actually can match up fairly well against the the New England Patriots, especially on offense, and I think they can pound them. They can run it so much so they can keep the ball out of Brady's hands. Um, but I don't think that the defense is is going to stop Brady. You've got to be able to put up twenty four to twenty eight points at least, at least, in order to yeah. keep up with the Patriots. And and I think that I don't know that Minnesota can do that. I think Dallas can do that. 
but I don't think Dallas can, you know, you know, stop them from getting 31. So, you know, long story short, I think those are the two teams. I, I think ultimately Seattle is interesting. And I think the, the, those are the top three teams, I think. But in terms of winning a Super Bowl matchup, I think it comes down to the Vikings and the, and the Broncos. And I, I think it's going to be interesting if Seattle gets there because they probably will. But those are the two teams I'd like to see go up against Seattle. I'm yeah. sorry, go up against New England. Yeah, it would it would be. Uh, I mean, you hope to see like a team that's very good defensively against them um, to have really any chance whatsoever. But uh, yeah, it's. I, I mean, there's not a team right now that's very uh, complete and that that really kind of stands out above the rest of the teams. Um, do you think that? I mean, we talked about this last week a little bit. I guess very very quickly. Romo or Dak, like, do you what what direction do you think they go uh, over the second half of the year? Oh, I think the absolute answer is Dak. Yeah, you go Dak all the way. Yeah, at this point, there's no reason for you to bring Romo in, and I still maintain my theory that if you bring Romo in, it's because you're down by 17 points, and you need the passing game to bring you back, and it's late in the third quarter. Yeah. Like that that's the only reason you bring him in. If you're up and you're winning, or you're close or even, there's no reason to bring Romo in. Is there I guess maybe the the last uh and again very quick. Is Aaron Rodgers and the Packers gonna figure it out? Are they gonna be yeah. a player in this? Like yeah. does their offense get it situated? Yeah, they're four they're four and two. I mean they'll they'll figure it out, uh, but they're not going to win a Super Bowl. I mean, if they figure it out offensively, though, they could. Their defense is pretty good. Run defense has yeah. been very great. Uh, I feel like I feel like they're the they're the equivalent of the the beginning of Friday. They ain't got two things that match. They got <laughs> peanut butter and no jelly. You know, uh, cereal and no milk. Like they they can't they can't have a complete team. Uh, and so ultimately, I think that that eventually when their offense comes back, their defense will go to shit because that's the way the universe works. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Yeah. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Better Rivals podcast. Uh, go watch the rest of the Warriors game because I'm going to go get happy uh, when the Warriors beat the San Antonio Spurs. And uh, make sure to follow us on the Twitters because that's where we post a lot of our work, post a lot of videos, a lot of the videos and plays that we talked about today, actually. Or up on Twitter. David usually gets his articles on Friday. Um, and honestly, in terms of a call to action this week, I don't know that I've got one unless you've got one off the top of your head. Um, You know what? Here's what it'll be. It'll be hashtag I got nothing because that's what the team has. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. It's also what we had for the uh, call to action. Blow it Absolutely up. Absolutely nothing. Oh, that's right. Hashtag, hashtag blow it up. Blow it yep. Up. Hashtag blow it up. I think that's probably So uh, that's called action. Hashtag blow it up or hashtag I got nothing. Uh, so make sure to follow us on the Twitters, at Better Rivals, at David Newman. Uh, and yeah, it's a bye week. So we'll hit you back next week. We will have an interview next week. Uh, and uh, we'll, we will indeed be back next week. But uh, definitely not going to be covering a game because we have a respite, at least for a little bit. Oh, thank so, you. Thank you. I know. I know. So we'll be able to watch the games and have a little bit of fun during this NFL weekend. So thanks again for tuning in. And as always, go Niners.
Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.